I'm Nia Clark, and this is Dreams of Black Wall Street. Listen, we have shared a lot of history with folks on this podcast, but there is so much more that deserves our attention. So if you would be so kind, help us keep it going by going online yourself to rate, review, and subscribe to Dreams of Black Wall Street on iTunes or wherever podcasts are available. In connection with the goal of the Southern Oral History Program, namely studying individuals from the South who have made significant contributions to various fields of human endeavor, the following is an interview conducted by Jenna Ray McNeil, Assistant Professor of History at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, February 13, 1976, with Pauline, better known as Polly, Murray. Polly Murray is a distinguished Afro-American who has been involved in the struggle for civil rights for blacks, women's rights, equal rights, in other words, the struggle for human rights, qua writer and poet, activist, lawyer, and professor since the 1930s. Ms. Murray comes from a family of educators. Her maternal grandfather, who was one of the first students of Ashman Institute, later renamed Lincoln University, helped to establish schools for freed blacks in Virginia and North Carolina following his military service for the Union forces in the Civil War. Her father was a principal in the Baltimore public schools, and her aunt and namesake, Pauline Fitzgerald Dame, taught many years in the city school system of Durham, North Carolina. Although Ms. Murray was born in Baltimore, Maryland, shortly after the sudden death of her mother, she moved to Durham, North Carolina to live with her Aunt Pauline's family. There she was raised to be a strong individual and an independent thinker. I'd like to know something about what it was like to be in Durham. You described it in Proud Shoes as um, a village, something like a frontier town. Mm -hmm. And you said there was considerable prejudice, but there were recognition of individual worth and bridges of natural respect between older white and colored families of the town. Mm -hmm. Now, was this something that only hindsight... uh, made you realize or was this something no. that one could be aware of the uh, quotation that yeah the quotation that you are giving there was my characteris- my characterization of post civil war Durham in the latter part of the 19th century i'm really there talking about the climate in which my mother my parent generation my mother and her sisters and brothers grew up and uh, the time in which my grandparents and their generation were in their in their prime 
uh, Durham being this uh, really post-Civil War town, it had, did not exist before the Civil War, so it had no background tradition of slavery and confederacy and all that sort of thing. And it being this kind of frontier town, it meant that people like my grandfather and his brother, my great uncle, Richard Burton Fitzgerald, coming into the town and being resourceful businessmen, had a rough respect of their counterparts, their white counterparts. And this would be true of families. One would recognize the Fitzgeralds, along maybe with the Hills and the Cars and the Dukes, not necessarily uh, when, when I use these terms, not suggesting that there were any social uh, contact between them, but simply a recognition that these are hard-working, respectable uh, uh, families, good, solid citizens of the community, and there was this rough respect. That now, do you forth. think this continued? I suspect that by the time I came along, it was not the same you know, um, oh, I'm trying to think of our historian who wrote the nadir. Uh, Rayford Logan. Rayford Logan. He talks about the nadir of uh, Negro life. Which includes that period. And yes. the, around 1915, you know, the, mm -hmm. around 1900 mm -hmm. to 1915 was simply the lowest, the very lowest ebb. And I think I came along uh, in Durham, and I came to Durham around 1914 when I was about three. I imagine I grew up in, in sort of the aftermath of that lowest period in which segregation had now become legal somewhere between 1900 and 1910. You know, all the segregation laws began to pile one on top of another. Mm -hmm. And therefore, everything was clamped down tight in terms of rigid legal segregation of the races. Uh, lynching was still continuing, perhaps not as, as, uh, as intense as it had been earlier, but it was still, uh, you'd get maybe 50, 60 people a year being lynched. And lynching was something always in the background. You know, the terror of lynching was always in the background. The awareness of the Ku Klux Klan was always in the background. Um, At what point in your life did you become sensitive to these kinds of racial distinctions uh, placed upon the restrictions and, and the terrorization of, of violence that was just a part of being an Afro-American or a Negro or black mm -hmm. in a town? And then also, a, were you aware of color distinctions? That is, uh, between the mulattoes, those who were darker, and did this make any difference mm -hmm. at all in terms of the Durham community? Mm -hmm. um, let me see, let me answer these one by one. I suppose this awareness to a child of my generation uh, grows with you just like uh, almost a part of your body and your being. It's, it's hard to say when you become aware because you take it in all of the time. Uh, I don't remember, for example, lynchings being prominently 
uh, portrayed in the newspapers. But we would hear about them by word of mouth. You know, somebody got lynched over in in so-and-so county last night. Uh, I think sometimes they were even suppressed in the newspapers. But one was aware of it. It was it was something that one was aware of. Uh, awareness of segregation, of course, wherever you went in town, you saw the white signs, colored signs, drinking fountains. Uh, Any time that uh, one would go down into the public center of town, one would be very, very conscious of it. Obviously, one would be conscious of separate schools and separate churches. Um, and the older people talking. Uh, you, you, it's, it's, it's something that you simply grow up with. It's not uh, something that you suddenly experience. Now, there may be particular experiences. You, which, and therefore, you had no particular experience such as such as uh, Benjamin Mays or um, Malcolm X who might have had a Ku Klux Klan experience uh, that kind of violence um, perpetrated upon the family immediately or directly. That, that, uh, no, only my grandmother's uh, uh, memories and my grandfather's memories. Who mm-hmm. uh, My grandmother would tell me about the Ku Klux Klan riding around her little cabin up in Chapel Hill mm-hmm. and how she Sometimes she'd get up, you know, at midnight, and walk the twelve miles to Durham because she was she was afraid to stay there. Mm-hmm. This was during Reconstruction time when apparently the Ku Klux Klan was not very happy to have a person of color owning property mm-hmm. up there. mentioned, you were listening to part of an extensive interview conducted by Jenna Ray McNeil, Assistant Professor of History at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill on February 13, 1976, with Polly Murray. In this episode, we are continuing our exploration of the unsung women leaders of Black Durham in the late 19th and early 20th century. In the previous few episodes, listeners explored the life of a trailblazing scholar who focused much of her work on this very subject, the late Dr. Leslie Brown. We also heard from Dr. Glenda Elizabeth Gilmore, who wrote a pioneering book on this subject as well. In this episode, we'll dive deep into the life of Polly Murray and explore how her experience of growing up in Durham, North Carolina, influenced her journey as a lawyer, activist, scholar, poet, and priest. A bit about her life, according to the Polly Murray College at Yale University, which opened in 2017, along with Benjamin Franklin College, as Yale's first new residential colleges in more than half a century. Quote, Born Anna Pauline Murray, Polly chose the gender nonspecific Polly, a jurist and activist who contributed some of the legal groundwork to the civil rights movement. Polly left Durham, North Carolina as a teenager to attend Hunter College in the 1920s and 1930s. Later, Polly's failed attempt to study at the all-white University of North Carolina garnered national attention and established a reputation as a civil rights activist. 
1965, Polly became the first African-American to receive a JSD degree from Yale Law School. Later, Polly wrote Jane Crow and the Law, Sex Discrimination and Title VII, as well as Roots of the Racial Crisis, Prologue to Policy, both of which proved profoundly influential in challenging the legal foundations of racial discrimination. Polly wrestled with gender identity, and Polly's most intense romantic relationships were with women. A co-founder of the National Organization for Women, a vice president of Benedict College in South Carolina, the first person to teach African-American studies and women's studies at Brandeis University, Polly was a trailblazer. Later in life, Polly became the first African-American woman ordained as an Episcopal priest and received an honorary degree from the Yale Divinity School in 1979. End quote. As you heard during the interview earlier, due to unfortunate family circumstances, at age three, Polly left Baltimore, Maryland and went to live with aunt and namesake Pauline Fitzgerald Dame and grandparents Robert George and Cornelia Smith Fitzgerald in Durham. A report by the Polly Murray Center about Murray's family home at 906 Carroll Street mentions that Robert George Fitzgerald was a mixed race educator, brickmaker, and Civil War veteran. His wife, Cornelia Smith Fitzgerald, was a mixed-raced woman who was born a slave. The two built a house in Durham on a one-acre lot they purchased in 1898, where three generations of family members lived, including their granddaughter, Polly. The home was a significant testament to African-American achievement. In Leslie Brown's book, Upbuilding Black Durham, Gender Class and Black Community Development in the Urban South, Brown writes of Murray's Aunt Pauline, who was a teacher and had a profound impact on Murray's life. Quote, in her classroom, Mary Pauline fought against the effects of oppression and degradation, not just by fashioning herself as a model of race progress, but by instilling self-respect, building self-esteem, and impressing a sense of dignity on the children of Jim Crow in ways that highlighted Black humanity. End quote. Polly's grandfather, Robert Fitzgerald, whose Durham, North Carolina home Polly lived in, as well as her uncle, Robert Fitzgerald, moved to Durham, where they both established brickyards. Both were respected members of their community. Their life trajectories, however, diverged. Robert Fitzgerald suffered recurring blindness and complications from injuries he sustained after serving in the Civil War, which later hampered his ability to work causing financial strain to his family. Richard Fitzgerald, on the other hand, was wealthy and continued to build his empire. According to Brown, quote, successful Richard detached himself from his in-laws as he and his family joined an intimate circle of families who shared Richard's goal of building wealth. Increasingly blind, Robert Fitzgerald depended more and more on his workers and the women of his family, end quote. Those women included his wife, Cornelia, who worked and labored to help her family survive. Brown writes, quote, unable to support his family, Robert could not fulfill the role of black manhood, a particular failure for a black aristocrat and one that subjected his wife to the hazards that black women continued to meet on the public roads and streets, end quote. 
This is important because it gave Polly perspectives on two different spheres of Black life. Though Robert's side of the family were hardworking, modest income earners, their education gave them more options than Blacks with less education and access into what were considered more respectable circles at the time. On the other hand, Polly, who often visited Uncle Richard's large home, was able to see how many more advantages wealth and high social status offered African-Americans who were squarely rooted in the, quote, better class, end quote, at the time. As we discussed in previous episodes, to a certain extent, class stratification in Durham's Black districts mirrored that of the white community. Identity was a constant theme in Polly Murray's life. It's clear how being a Black woman raised in the South could present its own set of challenges. On the other hand, being an educated Black woman raised in an upwardly mobile Black community surrounded by examples of African-American progress and promise gave Polly a sense of possibility that vast numbers of Black women of her time were never exposed to. This most certainly informed Murray's ambitions. Fitzgeralds were a prominent family and that um, perhaps you could say economically the class was even somewhat above um, the average Afro-American. Did this um, make any considerable difference in uh, your life in Durham? Um, Interrelations with black people um, and the kinds of uh, business associations the family might have with white persons. Mm-hmm. By the time I came along, there was a little, a fairly good nucleus of a Negro, or in those days they called color, a colored um, middle class business and professional community. By the time I came along, the North Carolina Mutual Life Insurance Company was well established. As a matter of fact, as a junior and senior in high school during my summers, I worked as a typist uh, uh, in North Carolina Mutual. And many of us kids in high school uh, worked in the summer in the North Carolina Mutual Company. The Mechanics and Farmers Bank was established. Uh, We had uh, Negro doctors, lawyers. Uh, editor of newspaper. There was the Bankers Fire Insurance Company. Uh, Durham was then called the Mecca of Negro business. So that what I'm really saying is that there was a middle class to which my family belonged, more or less. Within that middle class, however, the Robert Fitzgerald family, of which I was the grandchild, might be called the respectable poor. We were not business people. Uh, My aunts were widows. My grandfather and grandmother were uh, very frail and elderly and lived on 
his tiny Civil War pension, which was about $25 a month. And so that money was hard to buy. We didn't have a car. We didn't have a cow. We didn't have a horse or buggy. Uh, we were really the respectable poor. But our values were middle class. And therefore, to that extent, I think that there probably, that there was not uh, there was polite interchange. There was neighborly kindness. But there wasn't social visiting back and forth between the kids who lived in the bottom mm -hmm. um, and me. Mm -hmm. Does that, yes. that give you a... Yes. One thing that interested me about um, Durham and segregation was a comment that you made about schools. And you said regarding the, the textbooks and materials in schools, that it wasn't so much the hardship which hurt, but the contrast between what we had and white children. Mm -hmm. Well, this was true. Uh, I'll never forget West End School. It was a rickety old wooden building with peelings. I can, I can see those scales now. You know how uh, uh, wood or shingles or paint blisters and I can, I can see it. And when the wind in a storm, you could just hear the wind blowing through that old, old building. It was a two-story, I think it was a two-story building. It might have been a three-story building, but anyway. Um, and of course, the white kids' school, nice brick school, sitting in a lawn, surrounded by a fence. West End set up on an old clay, sort of an, a clay, you know, just just a barren. There was no lawn whatsoever. Just sat on 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 clay. And uh, the fact that I can remember this today, and I, I can see that old school building there, no swings, you know, nothing to play with when you went out. And I imagine that quite a walk to school was there? Well, let's see. I guess it was about a half, half mile, maybe more than a half mile, um, you know, where West Main Street is. Uh, and you know where West Chapel Hill Street is, and you know where Moorhead Avenue is. Well, I had to walk from almost Moorhead Avenue um, north um, to almost West Main Street uh, to, to get to um, to get to uh, Old West End. Um, so I guess it was a good half hour's walk. But it was the, as I say, it was the contrast between the treatment we got and the treatment the white kids got. And particularly the way we were treated in the newspapers, you see. You know, I think I described that in Proud mm -hmm. Shoes, and I said how that if they weren't talk about field day or talk about any citywide activities of the, the uh, school children, 
most of the space would be given to what goes on in the white kids. And then down at the bottom, there might be a little paragraph on, on what happened in the colored schools. And you sense those things, you feel them. As an adolescent, um, despite these experiences, um, did you still feel that you just wanted to be an individual, just a child who could enjoy just growing up and doing the things that children and teenagers did? Or did you become so disturbed by these contrasts that um, even in high school you felt that um, perhaps in your later life you might want to do something about segregation mm -hmm. or about racism? I think I operated on two levels. I was an all-around athlete. I was editor-in-chief of the high school newspaper. I was a member of the debating club. Uh, I was, uh, you know, involved in <laughs> most of the things that kids are involved in. Enjoyed doing these things. But underneath, I hated segregation so that all I wanted to do was to get away from segregation. Uh, when I graduated from high school, uh, my teachers uh, let, let me back up and say that my generation of high school kids were the beneficiaries of probably the first post-World War I wave of college-trained young colored teachers. And so while I was in high school, we began to get a lot of Howard University graduates and Wilberforce graduates. And this was probably the first time that the schools were actually being almost fully staffed with college-trained teachers. So we had a large contingent of Wilberforce graduates there. When I graduated from high school with honors, uh, the Wilberforce Club, uh, got together and uh, and bestowed a scholarship upon me to go to Wilberforce, mm -hmm. and I turned it down. Mm -hmm. I see. Now you're turning it. No more segregation for me. I mean, I was what 15, mm -hmm. but that I knew. Mm -hmm. um, you're turning it down. Um, did it have anything to do with? the persons in your family or with other persons in that school that influenced you during your youth. Um, I recall a remark that you made about the family um, and that that was that there was pride on both sides of the Fitzgerald family mm -hmm. but my greatest inheritance perhaps was a dogged persistence, a granite quality of endurance in the face of calamity. Um, now these kinds of um, strengths um, you, that you felt from the Fitzgerald part of your family, I mean, were, there, uh, were there particular persons that uh, had such enormous influence on you in the family that they would um, make you feel some inner compulsion to, to move towards something that was not segregated also? Mm -hmm. Or uh, were, were they more the teachers who mm -hmm. had been in segregated institutions or separate institutions? Or? Well, I suspect that um, 
it, it, it must have been uh, maybe a, a kind of painful decision for me to, to uh, make to turn down uh, a scholarship to Wilberforce because so many of the teachers of the Wilberforce Club and my, who were my teachers were my favorite teachers. You know, I mean, I, I love these people and they had been tremendous role models for me. They were the first young teachers, you know, young and bright and, and uh, full of life and, mm-hmm. and uh, really opened up new worlds for me. So the fact that I didn't want to go to Wilberforce for no other reason than that Wilberforce was going to be a segregated school since the people I liked best were from Wilberforce, says something about this deep internal thing about segregation. Now remember that my great-grandparents, Thomas Fitzgerald and Sally, Sarah Ann Burton Fitzgerald, were an interracial marriage. And so segregation was something that tended to split what to me was was uh, was my roots and you will also recall in proud shoes i talked about uh, families being split some families disappearing into the white race and so this whole business of separation was something that was deeply personal to me because it split my own family you ask me about color uh, differences. Color differences operated not only between, uh, say, uh, an individual and and the local community, but they also operated within within a family. Uh, I recall, for example, that I told you there were six of us, six little Murrays. And on the one visit that I made back to uh, Baltimore when I was about nine, uh, it was very clear that at least four of us could go downtown to the movies on Saturdays, to the white movie houses. And sit wherever you wanted to. Uh And two of us couldn't. And I happened to be one of the two. So that says something to you about why I would become a crusader for civil rights. I don't think I thought that in those days, but I'm sure that these experiences coming to me out from the intimacy of the family made an even greater impact than they would had they merely been uh, from the society per se. this broader conception of your of the possibilities for you socially or economically I mean most people uh, tended to assume that um, it was a great opportunity if they could go to any college 
um, even if it were segregated, um, did it have something to do with the fact that you had a, a, a very mixed heritage? Or did it have something to do with the character of your grandfather, the character of Aunt Pauline? I think it had a lot to do with all of these things. I think that, and, and I'm not even sure that, that this was conscious at the time, I think my grandfather played, well, obviously, a person who would wait until she had more or less made her own her name and then sit down and write a book about her grandfather says something about the impact he made on her life. He was kind of an enigma to me. That is, uh, uh, I was very ambivalent about him. I resented him and admired him. You see, but here was the impact of this person. So I'm sure that this was maybe an unconscious kind of force that may have been molding. Uh, Aunt Pauline's uh, understanding to allow me to be free to think my way through things and make choices and then support me as far as she could, I think was another factor. A third factor was something as... as uh, uh, as small as this, I mean, as, as seemingly uh, insignificant as this, but it was very important to me. One of my favorite teachers uh, came back to school in the fall with one of these long coat-like sweaters that they used to wear in those days, and it had a C uh, on the sleeve. And this was a, some college letter. And I asked her what the C stood for, and she said Columbia University. And I asked her about Columbia, and she told me a little bit. Now, what I didn't know was she probably had gone to summer school at Columbia Teachers College, and had bought the C and put it on her. But just this little bit was something that opened my vision, so I wanted to go to Columbia. And that's all that I knew. I, all I knew was that Columbia was in New York City. I didn't know the Columbia <laughs> didn't take girls. The girls had to go to Bardot. All I knew that there was a Columbia University, and my teacher had been, and that was where I wanted to go. Now, had she been, been one of your favorite teachers? She had been one of my favorite and teachers, and she... I admired her tremendously. For her perspective on the life of Polly Murray is one of those experts who is working hard to keep her legacy alive. Barbara Lau is a historian, teacher, curator, and quite frankly, many other things. She also heads the Polly Murray Center for History and Social Justice in Durham, North Carolina. My name is Barbara Lau, and I'm the executive director of the Pauli Murray Center 
for History and Social Justice in Durham, North Carolina. And you have a lot of titles. <laughs> so just explain sort of a little bit about your work and how you are helping to preserve this specific history of North Carolina. Thank you. That's a great question. So for about the past 10, maybe almost 12, 15 years, folks in Durham have really been interested in lifting up this story of the Reverend Dr. Polly Murray. In part, they are people from Polly's neighborhood, the Greater West End, also social justice activists, Episcopalians, queer folks, the African-American community, feminists. There are a lot of people here that as they've learned more about Polly Murray, are really interested in that effort. And here in Durham, we have a special connection to Polly Murray because Polly was raised here, born in Baltimore, but moved here as a very young child at age, I think it was either three or four after their mother passed away, to live with their grandparents and their great aunts, and very influenced by those principled, activist, individual, intense sort of thinkers and doers, actually. The Fitzgeralds have a really important role in the history of Durham. They came here very early to North Carolina from the Delaware, Pennsylvania area in the 1870s after the Civil War. Robert George Fitzgerald, first Polly's grandfather to be a teacher with newly freed African-Americans and then convincing his family to move here, including his brother Richard. And they discovered that one of the skills that they had learned working on the farm, making bricks, became an incredibly important and lucrative business here in Durham. Uh, Durham really didn't exist before the Civil War, but a major troop surrender happened here. And there was a, a taste of the local tobacco. And many of these young soldiers went home and wrote back to Durham Station asking for more of that. The process to cure and manufacture tobacco into smoking tobacco requires fires. Fires in buildings requires brick buildings, and Durham is very clay-based soil. So making bricks became a very important part of an economy that was growing very quickly. And Richard Fitzgerald, Polly Murray's great uncle, really made a great impact here as a businessman, first selling bricks and then moving into other industries, real estate, banking, a drug company. So Polly Murray grew up in this incredibly active, changing, growing entrepreneurial environment in Durham, starting in the 19-teens. So Polly was born in 1910 and came here in 1914 and was surrounded by people who had a very kind of independent and can-do attitude, right? They were people that had reinvented themselves, that had taken advantage of where they were, when they were, and, and really prospered in a number of different ways. And Polly grew up to be a really important and significant 20th century human rights activist. Of course, we in Durham argue that part of the reason Polly Murray became Polly Murray, the Polly Murray that the world knows, is because of these people in their family that they grew up with who stressed education, who stressed uplift, who stressed possibility. So Polly would go to great uncle Richard's house, which was a 14 room mansion with a tennis court and go home to a much smaller house, but a house full of, you know, people who had been educators for decades. And so it was in this environment that a Polly Murray could one, be supported to be who they were growing up, 
two, be ambitious and think about the ways that they, in fact, could change the world. And in growing up around very strong women, also see possibilities beyond what was prescribed for people of Polly's race, Polly's gender, Polly's outlook in the world. So we're very invested in the world understanding Polly Murray's expansive vision for human rights. And we think it kind of all starts here. So how did Polly Murray's experiences growing up in Durham, specifically her educational experiences, the discrimination that she may have witnessed, influence her career trajectory, and also her decisions to use her own skills and talents to fight prejudice and discrimination? Well, I think one thing that absolutely came from the family was the idea that you could create things to address issues that were important to you. So people in Polly's family created businesses, created schools, created organizations. Polly's great aunt created something called the Volcomania Society, which was for women in Durham to talk about the issues of the day, specifically Black women. So that was one thing that, you know, you could take that initiative and make something where there wasn't something before. But I think also the principles, Polly's aunts were absolutely what we might call race women who were very invested in educating the next generation of leaders and thinking about how that was going to impact everybody's potential in their community. And so I think that Polly, as we look at Polly's personal history, you know, Polly ended up getting two high school degrees, an undergraduate degree, three law degrees and a divinity degree. So clearly education was a path to expand yourself personally, but also to expand your capabilities and your credentials so that you could make that impact in the world and you could reach out beyond yourself. And I think that was the other thing. These are not people who were just looking inward. Let me take care of me, my family. These were people around Polly who believed that it was everybody's responsibility to sort of create a stronger, more just, and a more prosperous community. And so as Polly's moving through the world, you see this thing where Polly's inventing new phrases like Jane Crow while at Howard Law School to describe discrimination based on race and gender, or thinking about being a founding members of the National Organization for Women, or CORE, the Congress on Racial Equality, taking the initiative with the Journey of Reconciliation in 1947 to help plan what was the precursor to the integrated bus rides that were more involved in the 60s, sitting in at lunch counters in Washington, D.C. while a law student 20 years before that was happening amongst other college students in Greensboro, being the first African-American to receive the JSD, which is sort of the PhD level law degree from Yale Law School, and then becoming the first African-American woman ordained an Episcopal priest. So no fear of trying to push the boundaries. I think the people around Polly really understood that you make the way, right? If that's what you want, if that's what you think should happen, you make the way. And they were great examples for Polly in doing that. So Polly becomes a person who is, as Polly talks about, this is a relay race, who is understanding who they're accepting the baton from and standing on the shoulders of their ancestors, but also understanding how important it is to pass that along and think about how to keep those movements going. How do 
did growing up in the South, do you think, particularly in Durham, prior to the civil rights movement, help shape Marie's own sense of identity and how she viewed herself as a Black woman in America? Obviously, we know she was Black. We also know she was part of the LGBTQ community and, you know, being part of that community in the South (laughs) during that time was probably challenging And I feel like she felt, you know, just, I don't know this, you probably know more than me, but I gather that she felt very much connected to her race, but then also disconnected because of the lack of openness about being part of the LGBTQ community. And sometimes living on the margins of society also helps you, you know, further empathize with other people who are also living on the margins of society, even if, you know, they're different margins. (laughs) Absolutely. Polly talked a lot about the goal of an integrated body, mind, and spirit. And I think that while that was something Polly talked about individually, that was also a vision that Polly had for the larger world, this notion that human rights are indivisible, that we can't, you know, be, and and wrote in a letter actually to the president of the board of now, don't ask me to be a woman one day, a Negro one day, a worker the next. I have to find the unifying principle in which I can bring those things together. And that that for Polly was about survival. So yes, Polly growing up in the South, witnessing the sort of reinstitution of what we now call Jim Crow laws of discrimination. You know, Durham in these decades after the Civil War was kind of wide open because it hadn't existed. And so the people that were there were making it happen. But one of Polly's jobs as a child was to help her grandfather go downtown to collect his mail and to cash his pension check from having been a soldier in the Civil War. And he was injured during the war. And as he grew older, he lost his vision, which was why he needed Polly to help him. And she was so glad that he didn't see the whites only, colored only signs that were cropping up all over Durham. Polly, instead of taking the bus that was segregated, the public transportation, chose to walk to high school, which was on the other side of town. So very keenly aware of the difference, writes about this in their book, Proud Shoes, the difference between their elementary school and the elementary school that the white kids went to, both in the building, the textbooks, you know, all the amenities that were available more often to the white community than to the black community. And so deciding after high school that they didn't want to stay in the South, They wanted to move to the North. They wanted to try to attend an integrated college. This was really important, but understanding the impact of legal and cultural segregation and discrimination from growing up, I think gives Polly this keen awareness about the you belong, you don't belong. And as you were mentioning Polly's LGBTQ status and their gender nonconformity. I mean, Polly is very lucky because Aunt Pauline is very open to Polly being who they are, sort of without saying, no, you have to conform to this set of rules because you're a little girl. And so you can't have the paper route. You can't chop the wood. You have to wear this outfit. You have to act this way. I think we're, Polly and all of us are very lucky that Aunt Pauline was just very open to Polly's personal development. And I think later Polly does struggle with living in this very, you know, what we might call intersectional life that very much marginalized during their lifetime. 
mentioned earlier, Murray was also a member of the LGBTQ community. This part of her identity was something she also struggled with for much of her life. According to her biography from the Polly Murray Center for History and Social Justice, again located in Durham, quote, after graduating from Hillside High School in 1926 with a certificate of distinction, Murray moved to New York City. She attended Hunter College and financed her studies with various jobs, ultimately graduating in 1933 with a degree in English literature. She changed their birth name to Polly. A photo album from this era, The Life and Times of an American called Polly Murray, included early selfies captioned the dude, the vagabond, the acrobat, the crusader, and the imp, among others. It was at this point in her life that Murray pursued gender-affirming medical treatments, including hormone therapy, which she was denied. End quote. As you'll soon hear, experts like Lau believe Polly Murray's sexuality may be why a trailblazing civil rights leader like herself remains largely under the radar for much of her life and indeed many years after her death, until recently. But Murray's struggles with identity also informed much of the passion she had in her pursuit of equality and justice. According to experts who studied her life, living on the margins of society while also having a keen understanding and awareness of the rule of law and how it was applied unevenly throughout society, often along color lines, gave Polly Murray a personal understanding of why fighting for all people, regardless of background, to have equal protection under the law was not only a noble mission, but for her, a necessary one. According to Murray's biography, she became involved in the civil rights movement at a young age. When she started her unsuccessful campaign to enter graduate school at the All-White University of North Carolina in 1938, it was at this time that Murray developed a lifelong friendship and correspondence with the First Lady at the time, Eleanor Roosevelt. Murray was a member of the Fellowship of Reconciliation and worked to end segregation on public transport, even enduring arrest and imprisonment to do so. She helped form the nonviolence-focused Congress of Racial Equality, or CORE. When Murray graduated at the top of her law school class from Howard University in 1944, she became acutely aware of the oppression of Black women, coining the term Jane Crow. Quote, the Rosenwald Fellowship was awarded to the valedictorian and previous top graduates had used the fellowship to attend Harvard University. Despite winning the fellowship, Murray was rejected from Harvard Law School due to sexism, echoing previous rejections that Murray experienced. Instead, Murray went to the University of California Bolt School of Law, where she received an LLM, or Master of Laws, degree. End quote. That again was from Murray's biography from the Polly Murray Center for History and Social Justice. By the way, her master's thesis was titled The Right to Equal Opportunity in Employment. In 1951, Murray published the book State's Laws on Race and Color. Thurgood Marshall, head of the legal department of the NAACP at the time, described it as the Bible for civil rights litigators. Shortly after her book, Proud Shoes, The Story of an American Family, came out in 1956, Murray was offered a job in the litigation department at a new law firm, Paul Weiss, Rifkin, Wharton, and Garrison. While working there, Murray met their partner, Irene Barlow, the office manager at the firm. She served on President John F. Kennedy's Committee on Civil and Political Rights as a part of his presidential commission on the status of women. 
In the 1960s, she worked closely with A. Philip Randolph, Bayard Rustin, and Martin Luther King Jr., but was critical of the male-dominated leadership of civil rights organizations. Murray helped found the National Organization for Women, or NOW, in 1966, but, quote, moved away from a leading role because she did not believe that NOW appropriately addressed the issues of Black and working-class women, end quote. And again, several years after the death of her longtime partner, Irene Barlow, in 1977, Murray became the first African-American woman Episcopal priest. Murray died of cancer in Pittsburgh on July 1st, 1985. Their autobiography, Song in a Weary Throat, An American Pilgrimage, was published posthumously in 1987. The book was re-released as Polly Murray, the autobiography of a Black activist, feminist, lawyer, priest, and poet in 1987, and was republished under its original title with a new introduction by Patricia Bell Scott in 2018. For more on Polly Murray's struggles with identity and how it influenced her activism, once again, Barbara Lau. Polly lived to be 75, died in 1985. And for what, three quarters or more of Polly's life, being homosexual, quote unquote, was illegal. Being somebody who was seen as a member of the LGBTQ community firmly closed the doors to lots of kinds of public service or public facing activism, even. I mean, we know from the story of Bayard Rustin and his work with the civil rights movement, that there really was this fear of what they called at the time the lavender menace, right? That gay people were immoral, they were illegal, they shouldn't be a part of this. And yet, when we actually look at that history, there are queer people throughout these efforts and this work toward civil rights, women's rights, human rights. So I think that while it's sometimes easy to think about Polly in terms of things that were discriminating, that limited the structural oppressions that limited Polly Murray. The other side of that, though, is that because Polly was embracing and working toward that guiding principle that she mentioned in that letter, because there was this sense of being okay as just who you are, that I think started with Aunt Pauline, that also was an advantage seeing the world in a different way, looking at things from the margins, not necessarily taking the same routes everybody else took. I think that was also the gateway to some very innovative thinking that brings us Jane Crow as the precursor to intersectionality, that brings us this notion about the indivisibility of human rights and brings us later in Polly's life to this notion about this sort of universal acceptance of the love of God in her Christian faith and identity, that we are just the way we're supposed to be. So this call to wholeness, this call to uh, the vision of a world in which a person like Polly Murray can fully show up, can be validated, can be listened to, can be a leader, can be all the things that they have the potential to be. And so sometimes the view from the margin opens up many other viewpoints that have really, in many ways, moved us forward 
toward that bigger vision. And so I think we need to think about that in both ways. Murray's book about her her heritage and her family, um, it really describes the complicated lived experiences of Black Americans who lived through Reconstruction, who lived through the Jim Crow era. She describes things that both united African Americans and divided them, such as colorism, socioeconomic status. We see that a lot in Durham. Based on Murray's writings, How do you interpret her overall perspective with regards to her family's legacy during this time? So my favorite quote from Polly Murray's book, Proud Shoes, the story of an American family, which Polly published in 1956 and absolutely was a precursor to Roots and to other mainstream publications about African-American family history and genealogy. My favorite quote is one that talks about how Polly says, it takes me a lifetime to discover the true emancipation is based on accepting the whole past and facing up to the degradation and the dignity of all my ancestors. Polly had a keen understanding coming from a family that included slave owners and enslaved people, that included people like Uncle Richard, who was very wealthy, and Grandfather Robert, who was economically very disadvantaged that included people who, like Aunt Pauline, who could easily have passed for white and other people who were darker skinned and, you know, had the experience of people who were often discriminated against purely because of the color of their skin, even within the Black community. I think that the the grappling, the idea that we can't let go of any piece of that, that part of really being free is embracing and understanding and trying to think about the ways those things were connected and those ways those are all a part of us as individuals when we look back at our own history. Polly described herself in another interview as having, you know, all these parts, right? Volatile and shy, aggressive and a good listener, you know, all these pieces to a person, even talked about how having a terrible temper, what she called like an African-Irish temper. So, you know, really trying to think about that move toward wholeness that doesn't leave those parts behind, right? So in Proud Shoes, Polly openly talks about non-consensual relationships between white men and Polly's great-grandmother, Harriet, talks about what happened to her grandfather and his brothers when they tried to serve on behalf of the union in the civil war really is open about all of that history as a way to not take on shame about any of it, but to take on acknowledgement about the past and where we've come from. If nothing else, Polly was very sort of future oriented thinking about the fact that our job was to sort of keep things moving toward a better future, toward a a more perfect democracy, toward, you know, embracing as good a person, as good a Christian in Polly's case as possible. And so thinking about how the only way to get there was not to pretend that the past didn't happen or not to openly really acknowledge it, but to actually do that, to acknowledge the past, to understand the implication and the actual experience of the trauma of the the harm that was done by these systems of oppression 
to think about, you know, what we now think of more as a restorative justice model to really be in that conversation about that, that that's the only way to move through to what Polly called, you know, true emancipation or freedom or this notion of a more just society for everyone. So a very keen observer, even as a child of the way that these systems around Polly were impacting the family, were impacting Polly's day-to-day experience, and then extrapolating and understanding how those observations also landed when we think about the larger community. I um, know that we had talked a little bit about sort of some of those complicated aspects of Durham's history. And I feel that from everything I've read, Polly probably had a very keen understanding of that in a way that other people have shied away from in order to protect the legacy of Durham and Durham's Black Wall Street and the pioneers in Durham. And I guess, you know, it's just probably very fortunate that she was who she was, because I think it opened the door for, even though it's not talked about enough, for those scholars who have been Leslie Brown, people who have been willing to go further and explain that, yes, Durham was a wonderful place for Black people who could build something out of nothing and who could use their disadvantages to their advantages, but that also wasn't the majority of Black Durham. And the experiences of folks in Durham vary. And, you know, living in the West End, you know, seeing that neighborhood change, and as you mentioned, seeing her very wealthy uncle, Richard Fitzgerald, it gave her all of these different perspectives and probably allowed her to view people a little bit differently and more maybe accepting than members of her own family had previously. So I think her entire experience of feeling like she had to fit into a a system of, of oppression in order to fight that system of oppression probably helped pave the way for us to have a deeper understanding of complicated communities like Durham. Absolutely. You know, we are really committed to lifting up stories like Polly's that are lesser known. And I think you're absolutely right that even at a young age, Polly understood that there was never a single story, right? The West End neighborhood on the west side of Durham was lived in the shadow a bit of Haiti. It was connected, right? Polly Murray went to dinner at Dr. Shepard's house. Polly Murray had relatives that were absolutely connected as leaders with Black Wall Street. And Polly was with their neighbors who did not live any kind of privileged life, who lived in, you know, not very secure housing, who didn't have the economic opportunities or the educational opportunities that maybe she and some other people from maybe a more middle-class identity at least had those opportunities. So I think that is a lesson from Polly Murray that there are many stories that are really important to hear. And it's important to look at life and social change and this work through the actual lived experience of people. We think about how Polly Murray's lived experience drove some of these ideas about legal theory. Polly Murray was involved in helping craft the legal argument that ended up being the winning argument in the Brown v. Board case. But that was based on the idea that segregation was inherently unequal in that it impacted the way that Black children saw themselves 
And I think growing up in this family of educators who were fighting back against that and saying, I know we don't have as nice a school or we don't have as new books, but I am here to tell you that you are an important human being and that I'm investing my time and energy into you. But growing up in that household that had that belief then leads to this idea that the system isn't working for that same reason, because the system is sending messages that are detrimental to and harmful to young people in the Black community. So lived experience is something that Polly draws on throughout their life to open up new ideas. And I think what you're suggesting is that is true as well. Yes, we can look at Black Wall Street by the numbers. We can look at it by the number of companies that were built, the ways that the leaders of those companies then generated all sorts of libraries, hospitals, you know, social good. And we can look at it through this perspective of what it meant for an individual person to move to Durham, to work in a factory, to bank at Mechanic and Farmers Bank, to buy that insurance policy. Those perspectives are just as important in understanding the complicated dynamics of a given community. You know, Durham's considered the capital of the Black middle class. Durham at one point has the largest Black-owned insurance company in the world. Those are things to be very proud of, but we have to see them in this greater context. You know, people beyond the sort of first level scholars or spokespeople and really digging into that history to share it in a more complicated way so that we can think about its implications for today because it absolutely has implications today in the ways we think about communities. They are not monolithic. They are not of one mind. They are not of one experience. And we will not really serve to uplift communities or address the needs that people in those communities are outlining if we don't look at them in this complicated way that you're choosing to do. to, uh, particularly in light of uh, some of the experiences of young blacks today, I want to make one or two comments about identity. Uh, I am not aware of the kind of identity crisis for many of us in my generation as has been suggested about young blacks of the present generation. I think we had a very strong sense, and Ralph Ellickson says the same thing, and he's he's my contemporary. He grew up in Oklahoma, and these are segregated schools. We had a very strong sense of our identity. Uh, Booker T. Washington, uh, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, uh, these were very significant people in our lives. Uh, we had no self-consciousness about uh, reciting Paul Lawrence Dunbar in dialect. And as a matter of fact, uh, 
the the person who could really recite Paul Lawrence Dunbar with all the flair of his dialect was considered a, a, a very talented, gifted person. And uh, I remember my classmate Betty Betty Hicks. She uh, for many many years has I don't know whether she's retired now. I've forgotten her married name, but Betty Hicks uh, works for the North Carolina Mutual Life Insurance Company. And Betty was uh, uh, really a genius at reciting Paul Lawrence Dunbar. I've often thought that if someone could have discovered her when she was young, she would have made a great dramatic actress. But what am I saying? Uh, we did have this sense of racial identity. I remember in our family uh, finding these little playlets, 30 Years of Freedom. And then a second little pamphlet, 50 Years of Freedom. And these were little playlets that had been written up for community groups to, you know, to dramatize. And uh, one must have referred, say, to about 1890 or maybe 1895. And the other one must have been maybe 1920, 25. Well, so then are you saying that... uh despite the problems and the harm of segregation that also um, there were many things of value that came out of the fact that black people were so close to each other. Mm -hmm. And was there in fact something um, even comfortable about that black community, that community that was totally black, would you say? Um, I am sure that there were many positive experiences about it, as I think, for example, of the social life and the community life, I think, of White Rock Baptist Church, St. Joseph Baptist Church, I think Um, of... Mm-hmm. The AME Church. Yes, mm-hmm. the AME Church, St. Joseph AME Church. Mother Zion AME Church. Uh, I think of many kinds of community activities that took place uh, in these uh, community centers, so to speak. Uh, and, and these were comfortable. The point at which life became unbearable was in the contact with the white world Mm -hmm. in the sense of business contacts or, uh, you know, going into the community and being made to feel inferior by all the signs and symbols and, and the, and, and the etiquette, the racial etiquette in terms of your name, you know, being spelled by your first name or people addressing, uh, adult Negroes as auntie and uncle and maybe boy and, you know, this kind of thing. Uh, In the relationships between the superiors, the school official superiors, and uh, the teachers. And since I had so many relatives who were teachers, I was very aware of the hierarchy and the relationships and the interracial relationships in the school system. 
the superintendent or the the uh, supervisor who comes in and calls your teacher by her first name. Uh, this I think I spoke about in I wrote about in Proud Shoes. So the hatred of segregation was not hatred of community life among Negroes. It was finding barriers that hemmed you in, that you were not free to go and come as you chose. Does that does that make sense yes, to you? Yes, yes. And in fact, um, would it would I be taking liberties if I said that uh, that you had a sense of, that that people were building a sense of community, mm-hmm. um, and that this was something that would happen regardless of uh, the the outer environment, that people would continue to associate with each other and and be proud of their heritage mm-hmm. and, and have a sense of identity. Now, um, Well, I must say this. In my house, I always heard about the race. You can't keep this race down. This race is going to show the world yet. The race, the race. And so I called my aunts race women. I mean, there was that sense of loyalty and dedication to the advancement of the race. Um, and so there wasn't, you know, there, there wasn't a, a negative feeling about uh, my racial identity in, mm-hmm. in, uh, in my house. And yet this strange tension between acute awareness of a mixed ancestry and this devotion to the race. coming to the end of this season of Dreams of Black Wall Street, but we're not there yet. In the next episode, we'll explore the state of Black Durham and Wilmington, North Carolina today. And if you've got some time, check out the History of England podcast. Host David Crowther takes listeners on a journey through the history of England in chronological order, starting from the end of Roman Britain. Mm-hmm.